I know that Halloween is technically over, but because Thanksgiving has not come upon us, I'm going to go ahead and say it's still okay that we talk about zombies today. We're going to talk about zombies in church today. Zombies were, uh, are a kind of an interest, interesting American phenomena. Uh, they've obviously been around for quite some time, but I remember there was uh, specifically a time f- from, I would, if I had to guess, it was from like 2009 to 2012, where it just seemed like Hollywood was obsessed with zombie stuff. There was The Walking Dead on AMC was a huge hit, and it was just like every other movie was some kind of zombie movie, and zombies, have, they've always been very strange to me. They're obviously scary and gross, but in a certain sense, they're just not that intimidating because they're really, really slow and they're decaying and they can barely move. And it just, to me, it just seems like just hustle a little bit and you're going to be okay. But for some reason, there's just still this infatuation with zombies. And believe it or not, there is a kind of zombie that exists in the Bible, a kind of zombie that exists in America today. Our churches can be zombie churches and our Christianity can be a zombie Christianity. And so let's look at what that means, why I say this, and how we avoid that. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, we are beginning a, a new letter and we are beginning a new chapter. We looked at Theatira last week and now we move to the church in Sardis. The church in Sardis, what I am calling the zombie church. If you would read the first six verses with me, follow along if you will, for these are the very words of God. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, Sardis, like, almost, like all of the cities we've looked at other than Theatira, was a popular city, a big city. It was a regional capital, so somewhat of a capital city. And one of the more interesting things we find uh, as we sort of study history, we, we, we don't know all of these things infallibly, but the best to our ability, we're able to see that unlike all of the other cities we've seen so far, Sardis was not a city of great persecution for Christians. Uh, the Christians were not in a lot of trouble in this particular city. And so that's one of the unique things about Sardis, which I think will play into how we read the text a little bit. But another interesting thing is that so far as we've been reading through the, the, the letters this, to the seven churches, we've seen a consistent theme where there's something good God has to say about them, some kind of commendation, and then he moves into a condemnation. But Sardis, you could argue, is the first church that has no commendation. Now, uh, you, like I said, it could be argued because, as we'll get to at the end of the text, he, God, Jesus does single out a, a group of believers in the text and says good things about them. But the church as a whole, this is the first time we've seen the church as a whole, God has nothing good to say. 
And it's a scary place to be. You see, because remember, all of these letters were being received by all of the churches. That's why all of the text ends with, as in verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. They were all reading these. So Sardis was going through these letters and they were reading about the good that Ephesus had. They were reading about the good in Pergamum, the good in Smyrna, the good in Theatira, and they get to us. I wonder what God's going to say for that to us. Nothing good. This is a scary place to be. There is no commendation. Rather, we have an introduction, a condemnation, admonitions, warning, and then a conclusion. So let's look at the introduction briefly. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ identifying himself, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We already know what the seven spirits of God are. This is come up throughout Revelation 1 and 2. These are the, the angels, or the, forgive me, the messengers, or the pastors, or whoever it is that's receiving these letters, the leaders of these churches, most people interpret. God has them in his hand. But what's interesting is that he mentions the, the seven stars. This was somewhat new because earlier the churches were referred to as lampstands. Church was referred to as lampstands, but what's even more bizarre is that he says that it is him who has the seven spirits of God, right? So not lampstands, forgive me, I said stars, I meant to say the seven spirits. Not lampstands, but the seven spirits. This could be just another way of mentioning the churches, uh, but in Revelation chapter 1, this phrase comes up again and it seems a little bit more obvious there that the seven spirits is actually a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that sounds weird because there's only one Holy Spirit and there's seven here. Uh, but a more literal translation would actually be the sevenfold spirit. And when you read in the Old Testament, there will be times where the Old Testament describes the Holy Spirit as being the spirit of. And then we'll go on to list sometimes five things, sometimes six things, sometimes seven things. And we know that seven in the Hebrew culture was the number of perfection. So what, what most likely is happening here is Jesus is mentioning his close relationship with the complete, the full Holy Spirit. The one who is in charge of all of our graces. And the fact that Christ has him has these huge implications for a theological debate in the West and East. But we are not going to get into those today. Maybe for another time. But it is this wonderful introduction where Christ recognizes he who is the one who holds the churches, the leaders of the churches, and it is he who comes and even sends and possesses the Spirit. And so Christ speaks to this church and he begins right away with condemnation. Staying in the second half of verse, of verse 1, he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive but you are dead. This is a zombie church, right? Zombies look like they're alive. They're moving, they're eating, they're grunting, they're grabbing things, right? From an outsider's perspective, that's a living being, but we know that what's the thing about zombies? They're dead, the walking dead, the living dead. They look like they're alive, but they're actually dead. And Jesus says that this church is like a zombie. It looks alive, it has this reputation. The people who are around the church, they think this church is a living, vibrant, healthy church. But God says they're the walking dead. They're the moving dead. The living dead, if you will. This church is not alive. Now, there's a lot of ambiguity in this condemnation. There's a lot we wish we had more specifics of that the text just doesn't give us. 
For example, let me just name the two big ones. Number one, who is the ones who have established this reputation for the church at Sardis? Jesus tells them that they have a reputation. My question is among whom? Is it among the community that they're in? That's what I think. I, I think that it's probably the people of Sardis all have a high view of the Christian church. The, the community and the church have a, have a, have a good relationship. That's, that's what I think is happening. But it's also possible that the reputation has been established among the other churches that we've been reading about. It's, it's the other Christian churches who are all saying, man, have you heard about Sardis? They're, they're doing great over there. But we just don't exactly know who. Who is it that thinks so highly of the church and Sardis, even though they really shouldn't? We're not entirely sure, but we, we do know that whoever it is that is looking upon this church from the outside, from all of the kind of objective, somewhat objective lenses, this church looks like they've got it going on. Everyone thinks well of them. They have a reputation of being alive. But Jesus knows all things. He is the one who sees the heart. He is the one who knows motivations. And so he says that they are actually dead. And so the next thing we, I wish we had more specificity, more detail is like, okay, what exactly does this look like? Like what, what were they doing? What specifically was they, were they doing that made them look alive? And what does exactly does it mean that whatever Jesus was seeing, he's saying, no, that's, 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 a, that's a farce. That's not actually... I'm not pleased with that. The text goes on to tell us that Jesus says their works are not complete. They're doing works, but there's something about them where they're not finished. They're not complete. Jesus is still not very satisfied with whatever it is they're doing. Right? I just want so much more detail. What are they doing? And specifically, why is Jesus not pleased with it? The text just doesn't tell us that. He just says, you look alive, but you're not. Your works are incomplete. I'm not happy with you. It leaves room for speculation. I think, you know, when you look through Scripture, you see things that I think could fit in here. For example, uh, the Bible will often talk about how our motivations are wrong, and that sort of defiles our work. So maybe they were doing everything right, but they were doing it for the wrong reasons. They really didn't have a true love and devotion to God. Maybe there was other motivations causing them to do all these things, whatever they were. That's a very real possibility. Or maybe the works themselves were actually not that good. Maybe the Christians thought, oh, they're doing this and they're doing that and that's great. And Jesus is saying, well, it's not that great. So was there a motivation, a heart problem? Was there actually something wrong with what they were doing? A little bit of both? We, we just don't know the details. But all we know is this important principle, and we're going to circle back to this at the, end of the, at the end of the sermon because this is really the heart and soul of this text was what we do know is it's possible to deceive yourself and to deceive others. It is possible for churches to look like they are more healthy than they actually are. Whatever the details might look like, I'm sure, depend on the different church. But the broad principle is it is possible to look like things are growing great, but they're really not. And it just as a quick side note, we kind of know this, I think, inherently already. I mean, we see this in lots of relationships. It's amazing to me how often I will hear a really sad story, say, of a marriage falling apart. Someone on the brink of divorce. And sometimes it's like, yeah, we saw that coming. They've been fighting forever. But a lot of the times it was, from all we knew, they were like the happiest couple I ever knew. I never saw them fight. I didn't know there was something wrong. You know, sometimes things can look much better than they really are. That goes for many things, but it goes here for the church. You can be the walking dead. You can look alive. People can think you're alive, but you're not alive. 
But let's continue. Jesus says in verse 2, he begins with their admonitions. And he sort of gives them a threefold admonition. He gives them really four, four directives. To wake up, to strengthen, to remember, and to repent. But all of these words are all kind of getting at the same thing. Right? He tells them in verse 2, to wake up. Your, your translation might say, uh, to, to keep watch. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. So Jesus says, this church is not in good shape. They're the walking dead, but pretty soon you're not even going to be walking. Pretty soon you're just going to be completely dead. The, the little bit you have is failing, and it's time for you to wake up. In other words, I don't think this church even sees it. This church has been deceived by their own reputation. And Jesus says, you need to pay attention to what's actually going on in this church. You need to wake up, identify your weaknesses, and then strengthen them. Because this is headed in a very bad direction. Wake up and strengthen. He calls them to self-awareness and reflection as they drift further and further and that the even good that they had was about to die. The way I like to think of this is this letter to Sardis is like a spiritual defibrillator. One of the hardest words in the English language to say. Right? What is that? What's a defibrillator? It's that thing, the, the two paddles with the electric shock that get the heartbeat back. That, that, that's what this letter is. It's just a spiritual, textual defibrillator. Jesus has found this church and he checks its pulse and he says, I've got no heartbeat here. They're dead. And so he gets his defibrillator and he shocks them. He's trying to shock them back into complacency. He's trying to shock their heartbeat back into them. Wake up. He, he, he needs to find a pulse again. Because this is a lifeless body with no pulse. And he needs to find that pulse again. He knows they're not fully dead, but they're dying. And he wants to shock them back to reality. So that they can strengthen what remains and repent. That's the goal. To wake up, strengthen, and repent. And so the question is, is how do they do this then? Now that they've had some kind of shock, some kind of jolt back to reality by the revelation of God, how do they repent? Well, to some degree, we don't know the specifics on that because we don't know the specific problems. But Jesus does give them tools to motivate their repentance. And he describes this in verse 3 with this word, remember. What do they need to do in order to be strengthened, to repent? They need to remember. Remember what? Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Their strengthening, their quickening, comes from remembering what they have received. It comes from remembering what they heard. What is this a reference to? This is a reference to the gospel and the Christian faith as a whole. The first thing they are called to remember is to remember what you have received. The Christian faith has been handed down to these people. The apostolic deposit has been entrusted to them. They have received the Christian faith. And as the text goes on to say later on, they've soiled it. They need to remember the value of what they have received. One of the strongest things to, to keep someone from falling into complacency 
laziness, apathy, is to entrust them with great responsibility. To give them something of incredible value and say, I'm counting on you to take care of this. That's how you keep people on their toes. This is valuable. I can't, I can't lose this. It'd be like if you had an envelope of a million dollars and you gave it to one of your children and said, I want you to go deposit this in the bank for me. That trip to the bank is a unique trip because they hold something so valuable and so precious they don't want to lose it, they want to maintain it. Having something valuable in our possession changes our lifestyle. And so one of the things we need to remember as Christians is something far more valuable than a million dollar check has been handed down to us. The apostolic deposit. We are administrators of the new covenant. The covenant of God which brings salvation to the world has been entrusted to the church and to the churches. We have the most important thing in Roswell. You, you understand that, right? You can search through all of Roswell and you will find nothing more important, nothing more valuable than what we possess. The revelation of the new covenant of God. We have been entrusted with something incredibly sacred, incredibly valuable. And that ought to help quicken us from our slumber. This is too important to get lackadaisical. This is too important to get bored. But what came with the Christian faith? What also have the churches received? Not just the apostolic deposit as a whole, but literally the Great Commission. Right? Why, is, why is there a church in Sardis? Why was that church planted? What's the purpose of having a church? You don't, why do we even need churches? Uh, there's a lot of answers to that, but primarily it boils down to the Great Commission that Jesus gave to the apostles in their churches. That because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the triune name and teaching them all that I have instructed you. You see, they have a commission. They have inherited, they have received a commission. And so the urgency of our charge needs to also quicken us. God has sent us on this valuable, dangerous, rogue mission. We are soldiers behind enemy lines. So we cannot act complacent. We cannot be apathetic and bored. Our faith is too valuable and our mission is too valuable. So what is it that they need in order to wake up from their slumber? They need to remember the value of what's been entrusted to them. Remember what you have received. But not just that, he also tells them to remember what they have heard, which is most likely the gospel itself. The preaching of the gospel that saved these people and brought them together itself. The heralding of the gospel. They've heard the gospel and God says, remember the gospel. You see, it's important for us now to remember what they've remembered. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. We tend to think of that, right? Like this is the kind of the key to their salvation. I've already got it, right? It's already in my head. I'm already saved. So it's not for me. So now I just need to give it to all these people who need it. And we do need to do that. But you need it too. Still, today, right now, you need to hear it again. And you don't believe me, uh, near the end of our service, we're going to do the Lord's Supper. Why do we do that? Well, because Jesus commanded us to do it. But what did Jesus tell us when he commanded it? Do this, what? In remembrance of me. You would think something like the gospel is something we would never forget, but that's not true at all. 
I was actually listening to, you know, the holiday season are coming up and I like to just have stuff on the background when I'm doing menial tasks. So I was actually listening to a debate about Christmas. I'm not going to get into Christmas today. But there was one, the one thing that I wanted to mention from this debate where the anti-Christmas person, the Christian who was saying Christmas is a bad thing, he said, do you really need Christmas to remember the incarnation? Are you telling me you would just forget that Jesus became incarnate if we didn't make a yearly annual celebration about it? And I won't share the other guy's answer because I thought it was really poor, but you know what I would say? Absolutely, I think I would. I think I would. Because remembering from a faith position is more than just the data in your brain. I have no doubt that the truly converted will always remember the gospel. I don't think you're just literally going to forget it. I think we'll remember that Christ was a human being and took on flesh. But will we remember it in the spiritual kind of sense where it actually impacts us? Where we actually feel the weight and gravity of it? That is something I think we are quick to forget. We are quick to forget just how merciful God has been to you. You wake up every day and you know, I know the gospel, I've been saved. But no, 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 stop there. Do you realize you deserve to go to hell forever? You deserve that. And God, in his loving kindness, reached down out of nothing but mercy, nothing but grace, nothing but compassion, and saved wretches like us. That should change us every second of the day. We do need to be reminded of that a lot. I think this church has lost the gravity of the gospel. Remember who you were. Remember who you once were. Remember what God has done for you. And I think that gives us a little bit more motivation to wake up from our slumber. God quickens them with the gospel. He quickens them with the value of the Christian faith. He quickens them with the urgency of the commission. He tells them this is too important to do whatever it is they're doing. Then he warns them, what happens if they don't heed this? What if they continue to drift off in their slumber? What if they continue to lose their pulse and die? He says this, this warning in verse 3, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If not, or if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Jesus promises to come and judge the church. This is very common prophetic language. This is a common uh, metaphor that the prophets would use for judgment, a thief in the night. Jesus uses it. The prophets of old used it. This idea that judgment will come, it will come swiftly. You won't even see it coming like a thief who breaks into your house at night and ruins you. God will come in when you least expect it and ruin you. Now, I don't know what exactly that would look like. Would he take the church away? Would he make some of them sick? We, we, we just don't know the details. But what we do know is if they don't stop doing whatever it is they're doing, if they don't repent, Jesus is going to deal with them. The Bible tells us that judgment begins in the household of God. He is not a, afraid to discipline his sheep. He is not afraid to judge his visible church. If they don't repent, he will come like a thief in the night. But then he transitions in his conclusion and things get a little bit happier. Jesus knows I'm, I'm addressing the church at large here and corporately this church is not in good shape and so I have bad things to say. But I want to make sure that the few who truly do love me and who have been doing well, I'm going to make sure they know that I see them, that I love them and I have plans for them. 
So he ends by addressing a remnant within this zombie church. In verse 4, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. People who have not taken this great privilege that God has clothed us with in the Christian faith, and to be crass, they've peed their pants. They've ruined their clothes. He says, some of you are not. Some of you have been walking with clean clothes. And then he continues that metaphor. He continues that analogy into the resurrection and says, so because you have kept these clothes clean, I am going to give you even greater clothes at the resurrection. He says, those who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy when they receive their glorious resurrected bodies, bodies that are now completely free from the stain of sin, they are truly pure. God says, I will give them this purity. I will give them this new clothing. And why? Because they deserve it. Because they're worthy of it. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible is found in Hebrews chapter 11. When the beginning of Hebrews 11, we call it the Hall of Faith. Uh, God is referencing, forgive me, uh, the author of Hebrews is referencing uh, all of these amazing Old Testament saints who accomplished so much through their faith. But then Hebrews 11 takes an interesting turn where after discussing all of these great saints in the Old Testament who accomplished great things, victories, he then talks about how the same faith that accomplished all these things was the same faith that also helped the church be persecuted. And he starts talking about prophets who were sawn in half. And he goes on prophets who were, who were kicked out of their city, they were living in caves, it was their faith that helped them endure this and overcome this, but there's this little phrase in that chapter where he describes these persecuted Christians as those of whom the world is not worthy. What a title. That God would look at these people and say, the world is lucky to have you. The rest of this, they are not worthy of you. That's exalted language. That's the kind of language that if you didn't know is in the Bible, you would be uncomfortable of it ever being spoken to a human being. But it is. The world is unworthy. And he gives a similar, maybe not as emphatic, maybe not as strong, but he gives a similar meaning to these wonderful saints who have been persevering in the midst of all of their churches, apathy and distraction and deadness. These people who have persevered, who have loved the Lord, who have done what's right, God says, they're worthy to be mine. And they're going to walk with me in white one day. What an encouraging thing this is for us. To remember to pursue God in holiness no matter your circumstances. Live such a life that those around you are not worthy of your presence. They are worthy and they will walk with me in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will persevere these people. I will protect, I will save these people. And then he mentions, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels concluding with this great reminder of what we call the mediatorial work of Christ. Christ is the one mediator between God and man. There is no way to get to the Father but through Jesus. The only way to be saved on Judgment Day is to not approach the throne of God alone. 
if you stand before the throne of God alone, things are going to go really bad for you. You want to approach the throne of God in Christ, with Christ. Christ is your defense attorney who stands in the gap and says, I vouch for this one. I confess her name before you. I confess his name before you. This is why Jesus in the Gospels tells people that if you deny me on earth, then I will deny you before my Father. Jesus will tell the Father, those who, even some of them who say, Lord, Lord, I never knew them. They're not with me. That's terrifying. But Jesus says, no, these who have not soiled their garments, I will confess their name. I will be happy, as the book of Hebrews says, to be called their elder brother. Jesus is our great high priest, our mediator who stands in the gap, who stands between us and the throne, and we are purified, and God is satisfied in us because of our union with Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what do we do with this text? We've already heard very general spiritual things that are good and glorious and holy for us to know, but I think there's an important application that we can take away. This, this message of not wanting to, to look, or not wanting to, to just look alive, but to actually be alive. We don't want to soil our garments. We want to be with the ones who will be clothed in white. And I think there's a really important application for us here. And I think it's this, specifically tailored for our context. We need to be very careful of diagnosing busy churches as living churches. We need to be very careful of too quickly diagnosing busy churches as living churches. And here's what I mean by that. You will be amazed at the diversity of the American church. You go into one church one week, another church the next week, and it will be very diverse. But one of the things that's very common is for churches to be very, very busy with programs and volunteerism. We've got the greeting ministry and the sidewalk ministry and the children's ministry and the middle school ministry and the adult ministry and the family ministry and the singles ministry and... We've got all these different ministries and then every single Sunday it's just constant. Are you volunteering? Are you volunteering? Are you serving? Are you serving? Are you serving the church? And then you walk into these churches and all week long there's something going on. You've got a big calendar in the office. Well, they meet here and they meet here and they've got, well, you can't use it here because they've got here and you've just got nothing but busyness. And it's very easy to look at a church like that and say, they've got it going on. They're, they're all doing something. They're all serving. They're all volunteering. They've got a great reputation in their community. They're always out doing food drives and soup kitchens and car cleans. I mean, this is just a busy, busy, busy church. Why isn't my church more busy? We do nothing. We just show up and worship and maybe do a Bible study and then we're done. Busyness is not a heartbeat. Busyness is not a pulse. Zombies can be busy but they're dead. It is very easy for us to be distracted with tangible things like numbers. How many baptisms have you done? How many people volunteering do you have? How many people serving do you have? And you've got all of these numbers and you've got all of these tangible things to say, look at how much we've accomplished. Look at how much we're doing. Look at how busy we are. And potentially God sees right through that and says, I see no life here. 
a bunch of busybodies who don't know me. A bunch of busybodies who don't serve me. Their works are incomplete. Now, let me clarify. I am not saying that a church that has a lot of programs is automatically unhealthy. That's not what I'm saying. At all. And I'm not saying a church that doesn't have a lot of programs and volunteers, it necessarily is healthy. Not saying that at all. But what I am saying is for us to truly discern the health of our church or other churches, we have to look beyond just the busyness. And by the way, I'm not even saying that this was necessarily what was happening in Sardis. I'm not saying that they were too distracted with all of their 10 different children's ministries and singles ministries and young adult ministries and family ministries. I'm not even saying that's what was happening there. But I think the principle of looking alive but being dead applies to our circumstances this way. That a church can have a lot going on, but that is no reason for us to be envy, envious of their spiritual life. A church can have a great reputation in the community and have great unity, and it doesn't mean they're healthy. As a matter of fact, sometimes churches are so unified because they're so busy. Because the church doesn't have time to actually talk about things like, I don't know, what we believe. They will practice mere Christianity. They will shrink their doctrinal standards to be as short and brief and ambiguous and as unoffensive as possible so that we don't have anything to fight about. You don't have time to fight because you're too busy volunteering in your 12 different ministries and you have nothing to fight about because all are welcome here. One person said, one commentator suggested this was what was happening in Sardis, saying, in fact, Sardis may have appeared to be the most alive church for this very reason. As a dead church, it experienced neither theological controversy nor persecution. Content with mediocrity, lacking both the enthusiasm to entertain a heresy and the depth of conviction which provokes intolerance, it was too innocuous to be worth persecuting. Satan may have felt that Sardis was coming along rather nicely without his interference and were better off left alone. Isn't that interesting? You know, I, I hear all the, especially nowadays with this political turmoil we're in, I'm hearing all this. What about your witness? I don't want to do this for our witness. Are you concerned about your witness? What is this for your witness? And I think we need to think about that a little bit. Because there are areas of the culture I don't want to have a good witness with. When I look at a God-hating culture that hates Christ, hates everything his word stands for, they despise the law of God, they despise the person of God, and they show up to our church and they say, I love these people, I think we've got a problem. How can they despise our God but love us? That means we don't look anything like our God. Sometimes there's no persecution and no theological controversy because the church is dead. There's nothing to fight about. Just make sure you're volunteering. We need help in so-and-so ministry. Again, let me be emphatic here. I'm not saying that busy churches equal unhealthy churches. I'm not saying that. I have seen many churches that are filled with programs that I think any person in the country would be lucky to be a part of. But I am saying for our own, it's important for us to remember and here's why, because the reverse is true. A busy church doesn't necessarily mean you're a healthy church. And so what that means is that in the same way that it's possible to diagnose a busy church as being alive when it's actually dead, 
That means it's very possible to diagnose a not very busy church as being dead when it's actually alive. I want you to imagine what someone might think. Maybe say a visitor moves to Roswell, shows up one week, I'm here, and says, you know, I, I just moved here. I'd like to learn a little bit about your church. Okay, so we sit down. I share with him what I think is important. He says, okay, great. You know, it sounds, sounds like a good fit, but, you know, where I come from, I was heavily involved in the uh, singles ministry. So I just, could you point me in the direction? Who's, who is the, who's in charge of your singles ministry? Because I'd really like to get involved with that. Oh, sorry. We, uh, we don't have that. Oh, that's not a problem because, you see, I was also part of the greeting team. I really love the greeting team. I like helping people park. So I'll just do that instead. Show me, show me who's involved. I'd like to know who's, who's the leader of the, the greeting team. Oh, I'm sorry. We, we, uh, we, don't, we don't have that. Well, don't worry because uh, whenever I did have extra time, I would love to do the youth group. I really like volunteering with the youth group. So I'll just, just plug me in there. Yeah, we, don't, we don't have that. What would this guy be thinking? What do you have? What are you even doing? Redeemer Christian Fellowship? You just show up on Sundays and worship? When's the last time you've done a food drive? When's the last time you've painted a house that needed to be painted? When's the last time? We're not doing anything. So we must be dead. Not necessarily. Am I saying our church has no weaknesses? No. And again, am I saying greeting teams and youth groups? I'm saying these are bad? No. I'm just saying, I think in our culture, which is a very busy culture, in our culture, which is a very involved, structured, routine culture, in our culture, which is very tangible, we need data and statistics to prove those things permeate our culture, and it's easy to let that into the church. That if I don't have hard numbers to give you, you think the church is lifeless. It's not the case. It might be, but it's not the case. You see, what we want to avoid is becoming a zombie church. Everyone thinks we're healthy and vibrant. Our community loves us. We're busy, involved. But there's no pulse. We don't know God. We don't love God. We don't truly serve God. We're just busy. We want to avoid that. We want to be a church that is known for things that aren't quite as tangible Things like, they just really love each other and they take care of each other. I don't, I don't have data on that. I just know it. I see it. I feel it. I experience it. Things like, they take the preaching of the word seriously. They take the whole counsel of God seriously. Again, I don't, have, I don't have a graph or a chart to show you. But they take the word of God seriously. Their prayer life is amazing. These people pray, pray, pray. You see, these are some of the less tangible things that I think are more accurate signs of spiritual life than how many ministries we have and how 80% of the church is volunteering. By God's grace, would Redeemer Christian Fellowship not be and not ever become a zombie? Walking around, doing our thing. There's no pulse at all. <laughs>